Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, good to see you here today. If you and I haven't met, I'm Larry Freiling. I used to be the pastor here. And um, I've often told people that if you see me wearing a suit, we're either at a wedding or a funeral. The third option is that we're at an ordination. And um, this is kind of special. If you remember, at the beginning of October, we had Pastor Zach's ordination, where we turned him from Zach into Pastor Zach. And I said at that time, it had been decades since we had an ordination of a minister in this church. And here we are the next month over, and we're doing it again. And uh, so today we're going to celebrate the ordination of Eunice Kim. And in case you're going now, who is Eunice Kim and all of that, I thought I would just ask them, the whole family to come up and introduce everyone to you. So please come stand and join me here. Now, I'm, I'm going, going to start on this side. Um, Daniel and Eunice, I have known them for 15 years. Uh, Daniel is an ordained pastor. He uh, has been a pastor for 25 years. And uh, he and, uh, and the family were working at the East Bay Korean Church in El Cerrito. And so that's when we got connected. And what was struck me was that while Daniel was the pastor, it was sort of buy one, get one free because Eunice was also doing a lot of ministry. And she would tell me about Bible studies and youth groups and all of that. Well, Daniel now is no longer at that church, but he is currently at the California Institution for Men in Chino. He is a prison chaplain. And uh, he was a youth chaplain up in Stockton and recently moved south. Now, Eunice, um, like I said, she was involved in all types of ministry and a, a number of years ago decided that God was calling her to ministry and decided to go to seminary. And so those of you that are wondering about the call of God, Eunice at the age of 48 began working on her Master of Divinity degree. And over the years, which has been a lot of hard work, a lot of effort, and uh, finally graduated. And uh, I got to walk through the process with her as I was assigned to be her mentor. And uh, she finished seminary and then decided that wasn't enough education. So she took clinical pastoral education for another year. And now God has called her to be a hospital chaplain at Providence Hospital in Mission Viejo. And our church in this process has been Daniel's supervising church. And now we are Eunice's calling church. Now, this other great group standing behind them um, are their daughters, uh, Jane and her husband, Ethan. And then there's Christy and, and Hannah. And so this is a, a family event. We're glad they could all be here today. So that's, the, that's what when I t mentioned in my message today, Eunice, now you know what I'm talking about. All right? Thank you. You can be seated. Amen. Now, for uh, Eunice to get to this point, um, like I said, she had to have a college degree. She had to get her master's degree. She had to go through a variety of examinations. Our region examined her and Pastor Zach at the same time. The last hurdle that she has to go through is my message this morning. <laughs> so to speed it along, I want you to listen fast. 
and we're going to go through this. But what I'm going to do today in this message is I'm going to talk to Eunice, but it's going to spill over into your and my lives. Because the message for today is not just about being a hospital chaplain or being called as a minister. We're going to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we live out our lives and what difference we can make. Now, you'll see the title of the message is when our calling is bigger than we are. And I hope as you read that, you and I have the sense of inadequacy because the task is bigger than we are. Now, to process this this morning, we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 4 in our Bibles. And uh, many of us aren't familiar with Zechariah. even took me a little bit to kind of find it. So the Bibles in the pews are page 1,355. And while you're turning there, let me give you the context of what's happening in Zechariah. If I quick summarize some of the Old Testament, it was that God worked in a man called Abraham and said, I am going to bless you, and ultimately out of your family is going to come the Messiah. Now, as, God, as those people grew in number, there was starvation in the land, so they all moved to Egypt. And they were in Egypt for 400 years, and they became slaves, so God raised up Moses, brought them into the promised land. And when God brought them into the promised land, he said to them, I will be a God to you. But what I want you to do is I want you to obey me and follow me. If you do not, you will experience the consequences. And as the history of Israel went from generation to generation, there were ups and downs. And then there was this long slide down and God sent prophets and warned the people and said, you've got to turn around. And the people said, bah, forget it. And God said, enough's enough. And from the northeast, he brought in the Babylonian army. They came and took the people and brought them into captivity. They destroyed the wall around the city of Jerusalem, leaving it very vulnerable. And this beautiful temple that King Solomon had made, representing the presence of God in the midst of the people, was torn down. It's absolutely annihilated. Seventy years later the people start coming back, just as God had prophesied. They come back and they start rebuilding the wall. But what needs to be rebuilt is the temple. And the project started, but stalled out. And then God brought this guy in called Zechariah. And Zechariah has two things. Number one, he says, we've got to start rebuilding the temple. And the second thing is, the people are lethargic when it comes to their spiritual lives. They really don't care about God. They're kind of overwhelmed with a task at hand. Now what Zechariah does in chapter 4 is he has a vision, and it's directed to the guy named Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel was the leader, and his job was to rebuild the temple. I always think it's kind of interesting that he would stand in front of the rubble with the name of Zerubbabel. It's a good way to remember how they go together. So what's happening now is in chapter 4, God is speaking to Zerubbabel, to the people, and now to us. So Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakening from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? 
I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel that you will become level ground? Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel? Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Let's pause for a prayer. Father in heaven, you have given your Holy Spirit to lead to Zechariah to give these words. Now release your Holy Spirit that we may understand them. And we pray that at least one thought today from this passage will live in us and change us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now as we begin with Zechariah chapter 4, we've got to start with the idea that there is a huge mess. You can imagine what it was like to have the temple torn down and then just to lie in ruins for 70 years. And now you as a rubble have walked in and it's your job to put this all back together again. I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes overwhelmed just looking at cleaning out my garage. I can't imagine what it was like to look at this whole situation. Matter of fact, the people before Zerubbabel were frustrated. They couldn't figure out, you know, it just seemed like an overwhelming task. How do you rebuild something? I mean, imagine what it would be like if this building that we were in was destroyed, and then 70 years from now, you were called back to rebuild the whole thing. The job is just too big. As I'm reading through this, and I'm realizing this is a tough time for the people, I also realize that you and I can oftentimes look at this world and say, what a mess. This morning I woke up early and as I was getting ready, I was listening to a news broadcast about what happened this week. And I'm listening to the stories of what's happening between Palestine and Israel, what's happening, persecution of Christians in Pakistan and Nigeria, the war in Sudan. And I, I pick up the newspaper and I read about this shooting or this hit and run. And I look at the world and I say, my goodness, this whole thing is a mess. And you and I can get really discouraged really fast because there are a lot of things that are wrong. And the task looks large. 
And sometimes, like Zechariah, we look at the people in the church and say there's, they're kind of spiritually lethargic and, and kind of want to give up hope on that too. Well, I could quit right now and we'd all kind of go into depression and say life is horrible. But the thing about this passage, it, gives, it takes it now to Zechariah and says, hey, buddy, guess what? You have a role in the cleanup. The message is for Zerubbabel and to the people. What you're going to do from this point on is you are going to make a difference. And one of the things that we're going to acknowledge this morning is that in the ordination of Eunice Kim, the world is a mess. She's going to be working in a hospital where there are people because of accident or illness or some disease that are hurting. There's going to be hospital staffs, doctors and nurses and others that are going to need care. The world is a mess, but God has called her to a specific task, and he has called us and invited us to join with him in working in this mess to ultimately bring his kingdom. Now, as the passage begins, there's the vision. And you see the vision, and it says, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps, and there are two olive trees. And the thing about it is it doesn't explain this. It's sort of like when Jesus would tell the parable. He would tell the story, and then the passage would go on, and at the very end of the chapter, the disciples would say, by the way, what did that story mean? And then Jesus would give the answer. In Zechariah 4, we get the vision, and then it goes into a variety of things, and then it'll come to the meaning. So if you're wondering what that's about, hang on. The answer will come shortly. Now, what Zechariah does is he gives a number of statements to teach us. The first one is that God's spirit is at work. Not by might, nor by power, says my spirit, says the, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, imagine you and I are like Zerubbabel and we're standing in front of the huge mess. There are four different ways that you and I can respond to that mess and the mess in our world. There, the first one is we could do it with self-confidence. This is the American can-do spirit. I am Eunice, hear me roar. I'm going to do great and amazing things in this world. And if it's going to be, it's up to me. I've dealt with elders and deacons over the years that came into council meetings with that kind of confidence. My, they were a pain in the neck. <laughs> but they came in with this self-confidence as I can do it because I've got what it takes. The second thing that can happen is that we're scared into inaction. That the task is too big, I can't do it. Zerubbabel in front of the rubble, Forget it. I'm, I'm out of here. I, I, I just can't. Let's, let's talk about it next year and kick the can down the road, but let's not do anything right now. The job is too big. The second thing is that we can major in minor tasks. That is, we're so afraid of dealing with the big task, what we do is focus on the little ones. Let's, let's count the stones one more time. I remember a number of years ago, there was a church in the area, 
and it was, it was declining, and there was a threat it was going to close, and, and they, they asked me to come in with a few others to advise them, and I sat down with their elders and deacons, and was their habit, they read the minutes of last month's meeting, and as I listened to them talk, they, they, it seemed that they had spent a great deal of time in last month's meeting, whether or not to approve $12 to buy business cards for the pastor. The church is dying. The church is going to disappear. But we spent time talking about $12 worth of business cards. I was ready to buy them the business cards just so they would move on to important things. Sometimes we start focusing on the little things and, and we forget the big ones. But the last one is the statement God will work through us. Zerubbabel, this is a huge task. But it's not up to you. This isn't your job and it's dependent only on you. What God is telling us in this passage is that when he puts a task in front of us, you and I need to understand what our calling and responsibility is, but also what God is doing. Oftentimes, we often pray God do something, and that is, okay, I've just shifted all the responsibility to God, or we feel that it's all up to us, and then we feel overwhelmed. What God is doing is said, I want you to do your part, and I will do mine. Now, I was reminded of this, and if I've told you the story, well, I'm going to tell you again. <laughs> Many of us knew a woman in this church by the name of Pat Chow. Pat was a woman that was in this church for a, a large number of many years. And one day, Pat came to me and she said, my husband CK is getting older. He was like 80 something. And she said, his health is not good. And when I married him, I promised CK's, that was his name, CK's mother that I would make him a Christian. Now he's getting older. And she came to me and she said, I want you to make him a Christian. And I was like, do, do I look like the Holy Spirit? You know, <laughs> and I said, Pat, I can't make him a Christian. You know, that's, she said, if you don't make him a Christian, I'm going to leave and join another church. So I said, okay, but you understand that CK was in the beginning of dementia. And when I would go over there and try to talk, he would just sort of ignore me or just say a few things. And it was like, this is an impossible task. So I went over to Pat's house and CK, and I sat down across from him and I said, how are you? And immediately he engaged with me. And we had this conversation and I told him about Jesus and I laid everything all out. And he said, that's what I want. And he said, I believe in that and I accept Jesus into my life and I'm going to follow him. And then he looked up at me and he said, is there any reason I can't be baptized right now? And I said, okay. And so very formally, we sat around the dining room table. He bowed his head and I poured water on him. And I still have all the pictures because Pat was taking a thousand of them because she was so excited. And the next time I visited CK, he went back into that that world. That was his moment. Now I could tell you what a wonderful job I did and all the things I said, but the truth of the matter is I was stunned. God was doing this work. 
And I was just doing my part. You know, on the banners on the wall, you know, worship, worship God, love others. There it is, share the message. That's all I did. We have to understand what God's part is and what our part is. Oftentimes we assume his part. It's my job to make CK a Christian and I take on what I cannot do. And so as God is looking at Zerubbabel, he says, I've got a task for you. For Eunice, God called you to be a hospital chaplain. There are those of you in this church that are elders and deacons and pastors. There are members of this church. There are Christians here. And you are called to do God's work. And sometimes it seems big and overwhelming and unending. But God tells us whenever he gives us a task, he will give us what we need to accomplish it. And we need to have that confidence. It's not by my strength. It's not by my power, but it's God's. What you and I need to do is be faithful to the calling, even when we feel inadequate. And right now, if you don't feel inadequate, maybe you're playing it too safe and you need to take on some of the challenges of working in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community. That's the first point. The second point will be challenges will be met and obstacles overcome. What are you mighty mountain before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Now, if you have grandparents or parents like I did, you, they would tell you when they were kids that they walked to and from school every day. It was at least a mile. Often it was more and it was uphill both ways. You remember that statement. Now, the point of it was, as a kid, I had it tough because I had to go uphill. Do you realize that many times in the Old Testament, when a, the word mountain is used, it is used as an impossible obstacle. It's difficult. This past summer, for fun, I read a book about the wagon trains that went across the country from St. Louis, Missouri to Oregon. And guess what the most difficult part of the journey was? The Rocky Mountains. I mean, you imagine, you got four mules pulling your, your wagon and suddenly you get to the mountains. They are this huge, impossible obstacle. You begin to remember the flatlands of Nebraska and Kansas and wish you were back there. Now the story of the Bible is this. When God took the chaos of this world and created it, it was good. But then when humanity fell into sin, everything went uphill. Everything is difficult. I could take the mic and pass it around this morning and say, tell me about some of the difficult times in your life. What are you going through right now? Some of us have gone through the, the loss of a loved one. Some of us are dealing with damaged relationships. We're concerned about people in our lives. We're concerned about our finances and, and our jobs and all of that because ever since the fall, life has been uphill. And it is difficult and it is hard. And sometimes it feels impossible. I mean, look at the ministry of Jesus. Here, God becomes human. He comes to the earth and says, let me tell you what's on the heart of God. And what do the people do? 
they give him a tough time. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and the people's response was, well, if he's going to do that kind of stuff, we better kill him. Remember Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble because it's all uphill. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he talked to the people and he said, you know, we despaired of life itself. I mean, we got to the end of our rope because it was so hard and it was so difficult. As a church, do you know what our calling is? It's to go out into the world and turn atheists into evangelists. That's a huge task. But it's uphill. People look at the church and they say it's filled with hypocrites, it's outdated, it ought to change its morality. It's tough. Eunice is going to go into a hospital and there are going to be people in pain and suffering and they're angry at God and they're going to take it out on the chaplain. It's tough to be in this world. But look at the passage says. God says, I'm still working. What is a mountain is going to become level ground. Remember the words of Jesus, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be moved. We're not doing it alone. It's God who moves mountains. Some of you in this church right now, not too long ago, wanted absolutely nothing to do with God and nothing to do with the church. And you're sitting here today. Guess who moved your mountain? He made a difference. Some of you have a family who are filled with nothing but a bunch of tough nuts that need to be cracked. I know, I, raised, I was raised in a family like that. Half of my family wasn't Christian. My grandfather swore at me if I brought up Jesus. And before my grandfather, my uncle, my aunt all passed away, they all became Christians because God moved those mountains. What you and I need to do is say, life is uphill, but you don't stop. You keep loving people. You keep being patient with them. You speak into their lives, and you say to God, go get them, God, and I'm going to be here to help you. And God takes those mountains and levels them out. If you skip ahead, you find out that Zerubbabel did accomplish building the temple. God took that mountain and leveled it out. The next thing he's teaching in this passage is how the clicker isn't working. There it is. Pack up, back up, back up. There. God celebrates small beginnings. Look at that little line. Who, who dares despise the day of small things? Do you know what God's in love with? Small things. You and I are bigger is better, and God is saying, look at the small things. When God wanted to populate the earth, did he create two million people? No, he created two. When God wanted to save the world, he narrowed it down to one family and saved Noah and his family. God wanted to have a race of people to lead to Jesus, he picks Abraham. God wants to save his people from starvation, he chooses Joseph. 
And when the people get into captivity, God chooses Moses. And when a giant named Goliath stands in front of the people, and what does God do? Send the army to him? No, he sends a little kid with a slingshot and a couple of rocks. I mean, we're talking small beginnings. When God wants to rebuild the temple, what does he do? He sends Zerubbabel to the rubble. When God wants to save humanity, a season that we're coming into, what does he do? He puts a little baby in a feeding trough. I mean, how small of a beginning can you have to have that? Jesus begins his ministry. Does he train hundreds? No, he trains 12. And he said, you're going to change the world and God's going to use you. Jesus talked about faith the size of a mustard seed. And when God wants to start with something small, he chooses Eunice. And you. And me. And he uses us to make a difference. Do you realize that about right here, this spot, 10 years ago, there was a woman who sang on our praise team. She stood right here. Her name was Lorna. And Lorna, one day, she didn't feel well, so she went to the doctor and they did a blood test. And by the time she got home, the doctor called and said, you need to go to the emergency room immediately. And she was diagnosed with leukemia. And that began a year-long process of her being at Stanford Hospital. Now, I'm telling the story because her husband, Joe, was at her side every step of the way. And one day, Joe at Stanford went down to get lunch in the cafeteria, and there he, he started a conversation with a family. And that family, as he was talking to them, they said their 20-something-year-old daughter was on the two floors above Lorna, and as Joe talked to them, he mentioned, talked about Jesus, and they said, well, our daughter would like to talk to you. So Joe went with them, and Joe shared the word, shared the message with this young woman, and she gave her life to Jesus. The next day I showed up, it was a Thursday. Joe told me the story, so I went up the two floors with Joe, introduced myself to this young woman, and her Faith was strong. He, she had heard about Jesus. She put her faith in him. And here's another one of these. Is there any reason I can't be baptized? And there in her hospital bed, I baptized her. And that was Thursday. And Saturday morning, she met Jesus face to face. All Joe did was share something with this couple at lunch. It was a little thing. You know, sometimes we think if we have a church of 2,000 people, we'll be doing God's work. Sometimes God's work's done over cafeteria tables at Stanford. God's the God of small beginnings. Jesus said, you want to do something great for the kingdom of God? Give somebody a cup of cold water. Sometimes we want to think we've got to start bigger. We aren't going to do anything at all, and then we end up doing nothing at all. So start moving, one action at a time, one conversation, one act of love, and the ball begins to roll. Do something. Now, God celebrates small beginnings, 
and he celebrates completed work. If you read this, it says Zerubbabel will bring out, now where did that one go? Back up. All right, then Zerubbabel will bring out the capstone. What this passage is saying is the capstone was the last stone that goes in place. When that one goes in place, the building is completed. Now, Zerubbabel is standing in front of the rubble. And what God is saying is, I know you see it as incomplete, but I have the end in mind. I know what the completed temple is going to look like. And right now, you and I, as we're in this world and it's a mess and we're called to serve and, and all of that, what God is reminding us is he has the end in mind. Revelation 21 says, and God says, I will make all things new. What God's job is to take this creation that's been uphill since page two of the Bible and work through his people and work with his Holy Spirit into this world to bring it to a point where God said that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he will end sin and he will wipe away all the tears and the world will be transformed and you and I can lose hope unless we have the end in mind. You realize right now that we may be going through tough times, but this is not the end of the story. Paul says, I despaired of life, but at the same time he said, I would love to die and just be with Jesus. We need to have the long-term view. The problem is sometimes as we work for God, it's like we aren't really doing anything. All I'm doing is adding a brick and adding a brick. But that brick, built upon the centuries of the church, built upon the teaching and ministry of Jesus, is one more brick to the accomplishment of what God is doing. And so as Eunice visits people in the hospital and as she deals with the staff, it's one brick at a time. As you develop relationships with your neighbors, it's one brick at a time. As you pray for those tough people in your family that drive you crazy, it's one brick at a time. But God's got the end in view. And when he's got the end in view, we know we have a plan and we know he has a purpose. And we know he's going to accomplish what he will accomplish. God rejoices when it's all over. I think as God, when it's all done and this world comes to an end and he sends Jesus, it is going to be a smile on the face of God. Mission accomplished. And now, finally, we'll turn to the one that keeps popping up all the time. And the last one. The last one, he said, is we are empowered. Now he says, I see this solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it and seven channels and there are two olive trees. And you're going, what is this? And so let me give you a picture of this. In those days, lamps were run by olive oil. And you'll see at the very center there, there is a bowl. And the bowl goes down, and you'll see that there are seven, looks like candles, there are seven flames that the olive oil goes into. But look on either side are these two olive trees. 
And these olive trees are what they're doing is they are producing the oil that goes into the bowl, that goes down the channels, that keeps things lit. What God is saying to Zerubbabel and saying to us is, God empowers us by his spirit. I think if, if Zechariah were today, he would say this is the equivalent of plugging your electric car into a nuclear reactor. You got all the power you need to do what you're called to do. God empowers us. Now, you and I can look at these two trees on either side, and, and there's a lot of speculation as to what they are. But as I take the whole of Scripture and put it together, I'm going to do, I say, you need these two things to be empowered by God. The first is, you need the Word of God. You need the Bible. You need to understand what it says, what God says about himself, what God says about you and your needs, what God says about Jesus Christ and how he will change your heart and your life and give you purpose and reason and meaning, and you need that. In the words of John Ortberg, who wrote a book on spiritual growth, he says, I have never known someone leading a spiritually transformed life who has not been deeply saturated in Scripture. Spiritual transformation, you have to be saturated in it. This is my encouragement. If you want to be transformed and used and empowered by the living God, you need to know what the living word says. In, in 2 Timothy, it said that the word of God is God-breathed so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you don't know the Bible, or if you've been taking it casually, you're, you're hurting yourself. God has given it and said, study it, learn it, grow from it, mature in it. The second thing, the second tree, I believe, is God's Holy Spirit. We often talk about God the Father and Jesus, but we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is, is God who lives within us, and he is empowering us, and he is challenging us, and he's equipping us, and he is motivating us. And when we're faced with those obstacles, he is the one who works in and through us and for our growth and development and our maturity. As Eunice goes into ministry in the hospital, as you and I go ministry into our families and communities, we need to be empowered by God. We need to understand his word, and we need to have his Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul prayed, keep on being filled with the Spirit. I need to keep on filling, being filled because I leak badly. I'm also faced with new challenges and struggles, and I have a hard time with life, and I need that constant infusion of God in my life. And you need it too. So as the rubble stands before the rubble, God says, here's all you need. Now you have it too. Amen?